Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. And hello, everyone. Welcome to the show, to everyone in the United States and around the world. We now have, let's see now, listeners, it goes from 16 to 18 countries, one of the largest being China, but Australia following up and the UK. And, you know, sometimes we only have one listener, such as... Believe it or not, we had one lister from Rwanda. But I always say, even if you're one, no matter where you are, tell other people, spread the news to other English-speaking people with disabilities. You could, in fact, make the difference. And speaking of around the world, with the U.S. State Department, I travel around the world as a speaker in their speakers program as an expert on the employment of people with disabilities. So I would like a special shout out to my good friend, Richard Roberts, who I first met in South Korea and then went on again to Japan with Richard. He is just such an awesome person. Gang Yang Cho, another awesome person in South Korea with the State Department, Cheryl Harris, who I first met when I did a program for Tunisia and Libya, and now here she is in the United States with the State Department. She is just awesome. Vinyamin in Kazakhstan. I just want to say, Vinyamin, we're thinking about you. I can't imagine how tense it is right there in Kazakhstan, but we are with all of the people in the Ukraine, especially with people with disabilities trying to get out in the Ukraine. Uh, In behalf of Voice America, we are behind all of you. And hey, special shout out to Yoshiko Dart. You know Yoshiko. Never going to forget you. I know you know that. I know you're saying hello, Joyce, from your apartment. I know you are. Um, And thank you to Highmark, our lead sponsor. Well, very excited about our show today. Uh, I have not met Kenya before, uh, and it's just awesome to have her with us. And Kenya, just so I have it right, is your last name pronounced loud? It is. Just an extra D, Joyce. Okay. So we have Kenya Loud, who is a joint doctoral student at Yale uh, in the Department of History of Science and Medicine, African American Studies, Uh, She herself is a person with a disability, and I'm really excited for all of you to meet Kenya and to hear what she's doing. And Kenya, since you just heard, we have a large listening audience in the United States, but also around the world. So let's start, Kenya, with you telling our listeners about you. Um, I know they'd love to hear your story, where you grew up. And also what it was like growing up black and at the same time blind. So I'll I'll turn it back over to you. Okay, absolutely, Joyce. Well, I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, which is right outside of Dallas, Texas, Uh, born and raised there. Um, I was actually not born blind. I was born in ADD um, and became legally blind later on in life. Um, After graduation, after high school graduation, I went on to the United States Navy. And while I was in the Navy, I had a reaction known as Stevens-Johnson syndrome, which left me with scars on about 60% of my body, scored, uh, scarred corneas, um, and a lot of internal injuries. It was very questionable about whether I was going to have children or what my life expectancy would be moving forward. Um, and, and that was my first experience with being a person with a disability. Um, it would be 15 years later 
when an eye infection that is also a continuum of Stevens-Johnson syndrome would completely, you know, take my vision and um, make me a legally, completely legally blind person um, in both eyes. And so after that, I decided of course, like all people do, I went back to school. Um, I, I, I started off in junior college at Tarrant County Junior College in Fort Worth and then transferred to the University of Texas at Arlington, where I received an honors bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies with concentrations in African-American studies, disability studies, and leadership studies. And then from there, went on to uh, get my doctoral degree, which I'm working on now, at Yale University. So that is my big story, Joyce. Wow, what a story. Hey, I want to just mention, a lot of people don't know about Stephen Johnson syndrome, and the sad part is you don't know about it until you have Stephen Johnson syndrome. Um, and was in your case, was that from uh, some type of, medication you were taking? Yes, actually. I, I, I had flu-like symptoms um, when I was, I was still in boot camp, finishing up my last couple of weeks, um, actually getting ready to go through the, the last hurdles of boot camp, and woke up one morning just not feeling well, Joyce, and I went to the commissary, went to the doctor, and they prescribed me amoxicillin. They prescribed me Motrin. And, you know, that in combination with just a few weeks earlier, I'd taken a whole host of vaccines. So it is unclear. You know, I stay away from, obviously, amoxicillin and Motrin now. But the truth is, is that I really don't know what the, the holistic reaction was, but it happened very quickly. I went, I went to uh, my ship that night, went to sleep, took my medications, and woke up the next morning with an extremely high fever. Um, by the time I arrived to the emergency room at the Great Lakes Naval Center, uh, my fever was about 105 degrees, and I was starting to break out into blisters, and they had no idea what was happening. Um, it wouldn't be until a couple of days later before they actually identified that I was having Stevens-Johnson syndrome and I was uh, medically airlifted to Loyola, Loyola University where I would be treated um, for about three months. Uh, yes, I know. I know that there are people with Stevens-Johnson syndrome, just as uh, Kenya mentioned about the blisters, that if this gets too carried away, uh, the person looks as if they have third-degree burns. I am also not surprised how that impacted your vision, as that happens to a lot of people. Um, I know about this because a customer of mine, his daughter, had a reaction to, guess what, ibuprofen. And mm. so you never know. You never mm -hmm. know. That's the worst part. There's no way of knowing that you have this until yeah. that reaction. And, yeah, um, absolutely, Joyce. I have one uh, friend of mine, you know, that is the head of the foundation for the Stephen Johnson Syndrome, whose daughter, Julie, uh, is a person with it who was brutally bullied in school, and she's a beautiful girl. Um, and mm -hmm. She, too, uh, is blind. And, um, you know... It's just, um, you know, it's just amazing how this happens. Uh, and I'm sorry you went through that, but I'm also glad that you're okay uh, now. Thank okay. you. So, at and, and Joyce, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I just wanted to point out, I'm so glad that you brought up the Stevens-Johnson syndrome because I'm currently working on a piece, um, a survivor's perspective of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. This year in March marked the 100th year anniversary of the diagnosis, the first diagnosis of Stevens-Johnson syndrome, in which two young boys walked into Bellevue Hospital from opposite sides of New York City um, and were having this outbreak, and they identified it as a new eruptive fever, which would later be called Stevens-Johnson syndrome after the two men, Dr. Stevens and Dr. Johnson, which um, actually discovered the disease. So 
shout out to all of the SJS Canada, the SJS Foundation who that was founded by uh, Jean McCauley, the mother of Julie, who you spoke so eloquently uh, Yeah, that's about. who I'm talking um, about. Yes, <laughs> I know them both yes. well. Isn't that something? <laughs> Small world. Well, yes, um, that that is amazing about that 100 year. That's very interesting. Very mm-hmm. interesting. Well, uh, Kenya, what are you doing at Yale? You know, you're a joint doctoral student. Uh, tell us what your study. What are you? What is your research? What will your thesis be? What are What are you working on? Absolutely. So I am my my broad research topic. I'm looking at the black experience with disability throughout the diaspora. And for my dissertation topic, I will be doing two things. The first thing I will be doing is exploring segregated institutions that served deaf and blind African American students from the late 19th century going well through the 20, um, I'm sorry, the late 20th century going well through the mid 21st century. So we're talking about from 19, from 1885 all the way through in some cases as late as 1973. Um, and so I'm going to be doing some research looking at the communities that were built there about how they were able to protect these children from all of the other uh, things that were going on with African Americans during the time, protecting them from the brutalizations of Jim Crow, and providing them with not only education, but um, also, with being able to further their education, I found evidence that some of these students went on to college, went on to become teachers and have, you know, a plethora of jobs and opportunities that has not been explored. So that is the first part of my research project. And because it is very important to me to ensure that these things are accessible to a wide range of people, especially people with disabilities, I'm also working on making this research into a documentary film that will go alongside my dissertation. Oh, would that be awesome. Oh, that is really awesome. Um, You know, what a lot of people do not know is that eugenics actually started in the United States. Um, Mm. And it is amazing how many people believed in this. Then, sadly, this information got to Germany and the rest is history and why the first groups of people, of course, uh, executed were people with disabilities. Uh, So I I remember there was a school for children who are deaf in in Nazi Germany who they actually burned the school down. And what I think about eugenics uh, and women, for example, with epilepsy, which I live with epilepsy, but uh, people being... Uh, involuntarily sterilized that had disabilities. And the case that went to uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes uh, on, you know, uh, proving that sterilization is a cause involuntary for people with disabilities that should go forward. And sadly, his ruling was Two generations of imbeciles are enough. So, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to have a very interesting uh, paper and research and documentary when you are finished. And you'll have to let us know so that I can let our listeners know, Kenya, when that does happen. Absolutely, Joyce. Absolutely. Well, Kenya, thank you for your service. what caused you to join the Navy, which, by the way, my father's a World War II veteran. He's 97. He's still living, and he was in the Navy. Oh, wow. That is a blessing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank your father so much for his service. Um, I I'm also the proud wife of, a, of an ex-Marine as well. Um, what what? Honestly, I was in uh, junior ROTC in high school and did phenomenally well at it. I was the battalion commander, which means I was over um, I was over the entire school, the highest ranking person in the school, and it was something that I really enjoyed. Honestly, I enjoyed the structure and the discipline of it, and I, I wanted to become at that point a physician's assistant. That was my dream, 
and um, not wanting to cause any financial strain on my family at all, I decided that I would go into the Navy and then go to college through through my service, you know, through my service-connected um benefits that would that would come from being enlisted so that that's the reason that really drew me to the navy was that um i wanted to go to school i didn't want to have to uh worry about the finances of it or put any strain on my family and so it seemed like a viable reason to go well i i see also that i was looking you know when you were taught you, you just now mentioned about wanting to be a physician's assistant. And I Mm -hmm. see that you're working in the Department of the History of Science and Medicine. I was just wondering if you did any uh, research or work on the healthcare disparity that occurred to the uh, African-American community during COVID. I actually have not, but I can tell you that there is a wonderful professor here at Yale. Her name is Katie Wang, and she is she was born blind in Texas, and um, she received her doctorate degree here at Yale University. She works in the uh, Department of Public, uh, I'm sorry, the School of Public Health, and she does much wonderful research on how COVID-19 has had direct impact on marginalized and oppressed populations. Her work is phenomenal. Well, you know, being that you are in uh, the Department of History of Science and Medicine, I think you would agree that this will be in history books. You know, what what a terrible, I call it the plague, but who would ever dream this is possible? Yes, absolutely. And I think this will definitely be something that our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will be reading about as if it was the uh, the influenza outbreak of the of the early 21st century, you know, killing so many people and and causing such exponential harm to to people, and really pointing out a lot of disparities that we have in our healthcare system, especially for people with disabilities, people of color, um, and other marginalized groups. So true. That is so true. Sadly, Mm -hmm. that is so true. Yeah. Well, as you know, we are celebrating the 45th anniversary of the issuance of regulations of Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which is so exciting. Um, Yes. So for our listeners, let's start by talking about what is section what is 504 what is section 504 of the rehab act absolutely so the rehabilitation act of 1973 was signed into legislation in 1973 and um it took <laughs> it took the united states a little while to actually implement it and people with disabilities were patiently waiting for this to happen um, and and the basically they were wanting to have equal access to federal state buildings equal access to anyone who was getting federal or state money which included public institutions public colleges and universities simply being able to access these schools, being able to access these places, and being able to access them without discrimination. And that was the important work of Section 504. Well, would you say this this was directed the most toward education or equally across the board? I think just equally across the board. It, it definitely affected education, but it was about being equal across the board, about giving people with disabilities access to places that physically 
they could, you know, in many cases, physically, they could not enter. We're talking about, you know, buildings with stairs, buildings that didn't have elevators in them. Um, you know, at this time, there were no Braille signs. So just these very simple, nuanced things that for an able-bodied person, they really don't notice. But for a person with a disability, it can provide, you know, it can be a major barrier to actually being able to have access to equal living, to equal employment, to equal education, all of these things that in, you know, in real time adds up to being able to pay your bills, being able to be independent and self-sufficient. Would that include parks, public parks? It, any any institution that was federally or state funded was under this umbrella. Oh, that would include national parks. That's amazing. Yes. And I, yeah. So let me ask you this. I just want your opinion. Why do you think yes. that took so long to to uh, have this? Hmm. Um, to be honest, Joyce, I think, and, and it's something that we are really fighting against, right, in the disability community and continue to fight against. And that is people with disabilities' voices have often been muted, right, um, often being spoke um, for by other people, by able-bodied people, whether those are their parents, their friends, um, people who really don't have any contact with people with disabilities. And I think that that was really what took so long for it to happen. You know, and, you know up until this point, disability was really looked at through a white male normalcy uh, type of stigma. So um, if you were a woman with a disability or um, a person of color with a disability or a non-gender conforming person with a disability. Um, disability really wasn't about you. It was about, you know, those who had served in the military and figuring out how to how to get them back in the workforce and the labor force and enable them to be, you know, equal participants. But for other people, they weren't included in that in that scheme of what um access should be for people with disabilities. And I think that that's really what took so long. But once, the beautiful thing about the 504 is, um, and the sit-ins that in the protests that took place um, in the month of April in 1977, is that it really allowed all of these other people to collaborate together and come together to form one united voice. And that is what the power of the 504 is. Well, um, you know, it is sad but true that stigma, you know, ha exists and did exist. You yourself, how mm -hmm. being blind, have you had a lot of barriers or stigma? How about with you? How have you seen that? Oh, my. You know, I am very fortunate to be a veteran because that really opened up a lot of doors for me as far as being able to have access to certain technologies and certain trainings that enabled me to be as independent as I am um, as a person with a disability, as a legally blind black woman with a disability. Um, but that did not prevent me from, like, meeting this door of access, right, especially um, I felt it most here on Yale's campus, honestly, to tell you the truth, at the beginning of this year, um, this was my first year actually physically navigating the campus because my first year here, we were completely online due to the pandemic. And so I entered um, this institution on the actual grounds of the institution and really realized just how inaccessible so many places and spaces are on this institution, um, there are still buildings in where there are stairs and no ramps to get in. Now, we're talking about Yale University. Lots of money, right? Um, it's not like it's a money issue. Um, it really comes to the fact that people with disabilities are not in the arithmetic of how the school is constructed, right? People with disabilities aren't necessarily, quote unquote, supposed to be here. And that is really what sparked a lot of my activism here on campus, was just wanting to understand 
how accessibility worked on the Yale campus, who I needed to speak to, and how I could kind of, you know, um, start this conversation so that people with disabilities could just have more access. And that led us to a symposium that we had on disability and accessibility on Yale's campus. It was a virtual symposium that took place on April 4th, um, the day before the HEW uh, sit-in took, uh, the HEW 504 sit-in took place in San Francisco in 1977, the 45th anniversary, like you pointed out, Joyce. So, we'll, you know, we, we have started the conversation. It is going strong. There are other allies that we have been able to find on campus, such as Defy, which is an undergraduate, um, activism group on disability here on Yale's campus, um, groups like Divine Abilities, uh, which is centered in the um, in the Divination School. So there are allies there, and we have been able to find these allies and really enhance the conversation and collaborate, like, in the spirit of the 504, so that we can get more work done and, you know, really try to open up the doors for people with disabilities, even more so on Yale's campus and abroad. Well, that is really great. That is good news, and I want to talk more about this after our news break, but on the half hour, you listeners know we have this tremendous person that handles our news break, and that is Advocacy Matters with Perry Jude Radisig. Perry, welcome. Thanks for having me here. And we've got something really important to talk about today, and we have a deadline coming up of May 27th, and we're going to talk about the accessibility of aircraft lavatories. Uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation is seeking public comment on a very important proposed rule that would require single-aisle aircraft of 125 passenger seats or more to ensure that at least one lavatory is accessible. And it's hard to believe, but currently there is no federal requirement that aircraft lavatories be accessible to passengers with disabilities. What's important here is that these, these aircraft of 125 passenger seats or more are flying nonstop up to nine hours. So we can imagine how important it is to have an accessible lavatory on such aircraft. Now, the U.S. Department of Transportation as one that's going to be large enough to permit a passenger with a disability and, if needed, with the help of an assistant to approach, to enter, to maneuver within the aircraft laboratory, and to use all of the facilities and leave by means of the aircraft's onboard wheelchair. Now, this, is, this rule is an important step forward but here's the bad news. The U.S. Department of Transportation wants the, the uh, airlines to only put this into effect 18 years from now. 18 oh. years from now. Oh, my that's God. Wow. So, so that's not okay. I mean, it's great. It's a great step forward to have this proposed rule, but we should not have to wait 18 years after the effective date of the final rule for the requirement to go into effect. Uh, Perry, so that's advocacy now. Yeah. That it is, is awful. terrible. Okay, so what can our listeners do? So you've got to submit a comment. You have to submit a comment on the proposed rule, particularly urging the U.S. Department of Transportation to not wait 18 years for the access requirements to go into effect. Everyone knows we can and must do better. So, so go to disabilityrightspa.org, click on today's Advocacy Matters segment. You'll find a link to the proposed rule and a link that's going to let you make a public comment. So click on that link before May 27th. Applaud the U.S. Department of Transportation for taking this step, but tell them they got to shorten that time span of 18 years. They just have to. Do you know where you're going to have the biggest hurdle on all of this? You know, Tony Quello has told me repeatedly how when they were trying to get the ADA signed, 
how Greyhound was one of the biggest opposers. Well, you know why. It costs money. It costs money. You know, it costs money to make everything accessible. And isn't that sad? But I could see lobbyists from the airplane, airline industry uh, mounting opposition to all of this. Just the fact that 18 years, that is terrible. You know, when I went to uh, South Korea, Japan, Indonesia, all of those countries, uh, what, as a representative for the U.S. State Department, uh, as an expert on the employment of people with disabilities, those flights, they're 22 hours. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine... If you're asked to go, but you are in a wheelchair or a power wheelchair, well, either one, absolutely impossible, absolutely impossible. So what you're really doing is saying you can't go. You're excluding this huge population in this country. And for that reason, Perry, I have many friends, and you probably do too, that between that and the fact that people break wheelchairs, you know, whenever, by the way, Judy Eumann, when she came to Pittsburgh, when she got back to D.C., her wheelchair was broken. So many people with disabilities, they just won't fly. They would rather drive nonstop than fly or use a train or some other uh, form of transportation. But Oh, I hope you listeners, come on. You heard what she said. And by the way, you may not be disabled now, but you certainly could be over the next several years. You've got to go. You've got to go to uh, Advocacy Matters webpage at disabilityrightspa.org. You've got to go. You've got to go make that comment before. Did you say May 27th, Perry? That's right, Joyce. Before May 27th. Um, what do you think about that, Kenya? I, as someone who travels often, I live in Connecticut, but my family is in Texas, including my husband and my four children. Um, so I travel bi weekly. And this is, I just like to say, this is not important only for people in wheelchairs or power wheelchair users, but for people with all disabilities. This will make traveling more accessible for people with all disabilities. So we should definitely push the United States to make this better. Agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Perry, Perry, thank you so much. And Perry, you must keep us apprised of what's happening on this. You've got to keep We will. We'll report on the final rule. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Perry. Thank you so much. Thank you for always keeping us uh, apprised of what's going on. Have a remaining great day. Thanks, Joyce. Take care. So awesome she is. I love this because we are the source of weekly news on what is happening, Kenya, uh, across the country. That's why I tell everyone they've got to subscribe to Disability Matters with Joyce Bender on voiceamerica.com. Just go to Spotify or Apple. Subscribe because you've got to spread this around so people know what's happening. Um, And here we are. Yes, here we are talking about Section 504. Wow. (laughs) What a protest that was that you're talking about. (laughs) In 1977, that, that is history. Uh, and yes. that's why I was so happy with Crip Camp, because it included that since it was about Judy Uman. Uh, but for mm-hmm. our listeners, I know there are people in the United States that don't know, let alone people around the world. So why don't you tell all of our listeners what happened? Yeah, Section 504 was, um, the 504 sit-ins were some of the most profound uh, visualizations of people with disabilities that the United States has ever seen. Um, There were protests in cities all over the United States, like New York, Chicago, Detroit, Dallas, Atlanta, San Francisco, all over the United States. 
But the largest of these protests and the most profound was that in San Francisco, where over 150 people with an array of disabilities um, of different ethnicities, different different colors, uh, different gender subscriptions, uh, all of these people occupied this building for over three weeks. And, and this was like such a collaborative effort because they had help from uh, large institutions like the Salvation Army, which provided, um, you know, uh, mattresses for them to sleep on. Uh, the Black Panther Party provided meals for all of the people and their assistance for the entire time of the sit-in. Um, it was supported, you know, expansively throughout the United States. And what they were able to do was occupy this building for over three weeks of time collaboratively and make a stance and say no more. And that is what actually ended up implementing the non-discriminatory act that became 504, later leading up to the ADA of 1990, and all of the subsequent amendments and acts that have come from that. So we owe such a huge honor. We owe so much to all of those who actually occupied those that building and enabled us to be where we are, even though we're not all the way there. We've come a long way, Joyce, from where we were in 1977. And would you mind sharing with our listeners what caused that protest? Yes. Um, basically, what caused the protest is because, as I said early, the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, even though it was signed into legislation, there had been no work to actually make it happen. <laughs> no actual implementation of what it promised to do. So these protesters were protesting for their rights that had already been given to them. They wanted these rights implemented. They wanted to have equal access to federal buildings, state buildings, um, any entity receiving federal and state um, funds across the United States. They wanted to have equal em employment and just be non-discriminant in all of their access to every, you know, daily things that many people take for granted. They just wanted to have equal access. And they were able to make, like, a huge stride and make that happen. Um, you know, Kitty Cone and Judy Human were such wonderful organizers of it and, and were the leading faces, which was extremely important because these were women during the time, right? These were women in the 1970s taking a stance against um, discriminatory acts against people with disabilities. Um, and, yeah, that sit-in was a major disability rights protest in April of uh, 1977. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and as you said, there was a San Francisco federal building set in, and that was... That was started, uh, which is amazing, as you said, uh, by women. And who did they target at the beginning? Whom did they target at the beginning? I believe it was a very collaborative effort. They, they want, you know, it, a lot of the movement, a lot of the movement really started in the UC Berkeley area, right? There was this really big push um, for um people with disabilities, especially who would, you know, subsequently be college students, for them to have access and to have a say-so about how they were taken care of, about who was taking care of them, about it no longer being a sense of um, pity, but instead entitlement. I am entitled to be able to um, access good health care. I am entitled to be able to say who is taking care of me. So the, the UC Berkeley area was like a hub of so much of this movement that spread so sporadically throughout and disparately throughout the United States. And I think they targeted the Department of Health, Education, Welfare uh, as the lead agency. Uh, is it that's who they, Judy Yeoman and, and this yes. whole group, that's who they targeted. And wow, what an impact they had. Isn't that amazing? Yes, absolutely. Lasting impact. Yes. So um, 
you know, you're working on this work that you talked about earlier. But mm-hmm. before we talk more about that, a little comment you just made caught my attention. Section mm-hmm. 504. How strong do you believe that is today? Like, how much further do we have to go? Or is it in jeopardy? What do you think? This is a wonderful question, Joyce. I think that the spirit of the 504, right, the collaborative spirit that enabled all of these different types of people to come together who had different life experiences, like extremely different life experiences, to be able to come together and collectively stand up, I believe that we're in a very good place right now. Um, I think that the pandemic has re-sparked the you know, we've moved from disability rights to disability justice. That's the kind of switch that I see. Um, you know, we we have the rights. Now we want the justice. We want it to no longer be a point of simply institutions checking off of their list about what needs to be done in order for them to, um, you know, comply. Instead, we want to think about just lived experiences, right? We're thinking about how we can, what, what is just right? What is the right thing to do? When a, we're moving from um, pity to empowerment. And so I think the spirit of the 504 is alive and well. We, we absolutely have much, much more work to do. Um, and I think the fact that people with disabilities are so, you know, um, visible now, it reminds people that there is so much work to be done. It goes far beyond just compliance. It goes far beyond just having an, a ramp, just as, um, you know, the wonderful newscaster just in, informed us. We're thinking about being able to travel equally, to have access to all of these things that able-bodied people probably don't even realize. Being able to read an email without there being uh, un-OCR'd things on the screen, you know? It's like these little small things that we can implement in our daily lived experiences that can really have a large impact on people with accessibility, I mean, people with disabilities and their access to space and place and just being able to live their lives to the fullest. So I think the the power of the 504 is strong and that um, we're finding a new, you know, a new group of people, younger group of people who are breathing new life into this activism. Right. And, And you know what? Uh, Kenya, I was very impressed on the research you talked about that you're doing. What what is your what are your plans? Like, what is your career goal? What do you what do you want to be doing when when your doctorate is finished? Absolutely. Um, I love the nonprofit sector. Um, I, I have, I'm the co-founder of a nonprofit um, called BeLikeAGirl.org, but even more so, I love the research and I love working one-on-one and, and having that, you know, relationship with students. So I think that it's very important, especially now that I've been in, in undergraduate and graduate school, the representation is what's needed. So I would love to be a tenure track professor at a you know at a at an institution. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be small. I would be happy wherever the creator put me, you know. But I would love to be able to be a reminder and a representation that change is happening, and to you know enable to spark the next generation to think about how they can push the envelope even more. Oh, that is a great, that is a great attitude and a great plan. And I know you will be successful. And you mentioned this BeLikeAGirl.org. What, what is that? Yes, BeLikeAGirl.org is an organization that I co-founded with a very dear friend of mine named Nkoyo Ojuoke. And it is centered around giving African-American girls, people of, girls of African descent, um, experience mentoring and networking within STEM careers. As many of your um, listeners probably know, um, African-American women in particular are very much so 
underrepresented in STEM careers, as are people with disabilities. So it is very important that we provide this mentoring and networking and support system for them in order to enable them to have equal access to these careers and to be able to enact change on their own communities. Now, like, what do you do at your not-for-profit? What are some of the programs to help make those goals a reality? Absolutely. Um, so right now we are in a, a pilot program. Um, we This is the second semester of the pilot program we're working on. It is with a African-centered school called the Uhuru Academy. And with this pilot program, basically what we do is we introduce the girls to black women in STEM, many of which none of them had ever heard of before, giving them an introduction of the historical background, and then also what's something that we call year youth empowerment action research which enables the girls to identify problems that they see within their communities and then conduct research and present um, the community with ideas of how they may um, better serve you know better better um, how can I say this? How they may be able to better um, serve these communities and really have an impact on these issues that they're concerned about. So we're in, in short, we're trying to build the future leaders of tomorrow. Um, and why I'm asking you this is mm -hmm. where do you start? You know what I mean? Where do you start? Because, I, you know, we have at the Bender Leadership Academy, and now we're mm -hmm. not teaching people STEM. You know, I own Bender Consulting Services, which is a for-profit company focusing on the competitive employment of people with disabilities and training and accessibility. But a few years ago, we launched the Bender Leadership Academy uh, mm -hmm. as a separate entity because for over 20 years, I did volunteer work helping high school students with disabilities, preparing them for the world of work and how to deal with mm. bullying and believing in themselves. And, uh, you know, so many people are taking their own lives that are youth. So very important yes, to absolutely. me. absolutely. However, at absolutely. the same time, I have people saying to me what you just said. Why aren't people with disabilities going into the STEM field? Why aren't they? Well, one of the reasons is the bar is lowered when the person is in preschool and or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, first year of school. And of course, you know, just like that book, Shame of the Nation, Apartheid in America, you know, the poorer you are, the less education, quality education that you receive. So when I was talking once to none other than Judy Human about this and told her what I was doing, she said, yeah, the only problem is you have to start almost in kindergarten. I don't know mm, what you think yes. about that, uh, but, you know, the person obviously has to be well-educated in school, included, uh, you know, moving on, or how the heck will they ever move into a STEM area? Yeah, absolutely, Joyce. Absolutely. And, you know, we're very uh, statistically based. Um, so, you know, before we started this nonprofit, we did a lot of research. Well, I did a lot of research on the statistics behind black women in STEM and black girls in their interactions in school. And one of the things that I found out was that the age in which the disconnect between science and technology and math tends to happen is when um, girls, when, when African-American girls are moving from elementary school to middle school. Something happens there, and they are less likely from that middle school age moving forward. They're, like, they're less likely to move into higher-level math and science courses. They're less likely to take Algebra One, which is considered the gateway um, course in STEM fields, right? They're less likely to take that course before ninth grade. And what happens is you don't take that course before ninth grade, then you're, you're, more, you're less likely to take the advanced courses like calculus and trigonometry and those types of courses, which really, you know, prepare you and lay the groundwork for STEM careers. So I absolutely agree with you, Joyce. It has to start very early. It has to start very early. 
Right. And how do you do that when you have these young African-American girls that live in poverty? That's what I'm meaning. I mean, it, it's it's really a dilemma, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's why we see, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of the latest statistics on people with disabilities in prison systems, right? But there's, we see this overlap happening because the juvenile justice system is plagued with uh, people of color and also, you know, the prison system. But the most recent statistics said that eight out of 10 prisoners identify as having a disability. So there's definitely an overlap here with this conversation when we're talking about the disparation between when it comes to being a person with a disability and being a person with a, uh, a person of color. And so I think that, for, in my opinion, it has to be a holistic, community-centered village concept, right? Everyone has to buy in. We all have to be accountable for how uh, people are being educated. We have to be accountable for what is expected. And we have to be accountable for creating a, an, an environment that buttresses you know, them to be able to really develop the visions that they identify at a young age and keep them on course. Right. Well, Kenya, before we end the show today, I wanted to ask you, um, at this point in your life, what do you believe is your greatest accomplishment? Oh, I loved this question, Joyce, when I saw it in the question list. And I've been thinking through lately becoming the most, you know, the truest, most authentic version of myself. And for me, what that means is, you know, being able to be proud and identify every part of myself. So I identify as a legally blind woman of African descent with a service-connected disability. That is every aspect of myself. And my biggest accomplishment to this day is being able to be proud of just that and not being forced, uh, not feeling like I'm forced to pluck out, as Audre Lorde says, pluck out little parts of me in order to fit into certain communities. I can fit into every community that I am a part of and be the the most truest, authentic version of myself. And I'm very proud of that. Well, that is a great accomplishment. That's why I always say to people, you know, I'm living with epilepsy and I'm not ashamed I'm living with epilepsy. Kenya, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you. And good luck. And I, I, I will be a listener from here on out. Thank you so much. You are more than welcome. So we end every show with a quote. Oh, what does it have to be today? I was going to either have to get involved with changing the system that limited me or not participate in society, said Judy Human. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Remember, in the words of Mary Brocker, choose joy. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We are the leader in live Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you.